This is Event Masters. Behind the scenes stories, experiences, and lessons shared by the world's leading event experts. Hosted by Christian Napier. We've got another episode of Event Masters for you today. And our guest, I have to say, it's not every day that I get to talk to somebody who actually can claim Hall of Famer in their title. And we're dealing with a real Hall of Famer today. Frank Sapovitz is joining us. Frank, thank you so much for taking the time. How are you? I'm great, Christian. It's great to be here with you today. Well, I'm honored to have you, Frank. Uh, before we get started into story time and, and looking back at your amazing career, uh, why don't you tell us where you're joining us from today and what you're up to? Uh, I'm joining you from Long Island, New York, about 35 miles to the east of Manhattan. Um, I started working out of my home, as so many people did after COVID. I, I used to have an office in lower Manhattan. Um, and when, when COVID hit, that kind of went away. And, uh, well, there was no real good reason to go back to Manhattan. I, I'm enjoying my commute on a flight of steps instead of um, on the Long Island Railroad. So that's, that's where I am today. <laughs> uh, likewise, uh, when COVID hit, I, all my travel stopped and I'm joining you from my home office that is just steps away from all of the critical infrastructure I need to do my job which is the restroom and the kitchen, right? <laughs> so <laughs> it's all good. Well, Frank, I mentioned Hall of Famer. So you were actually inducted into the Event Industry Hall of Fame in 2006. Uh, you're also an author. So you've authored, uh, how many books have you authored, Frank? I, I think I'm in the, I think I'm in the process of number five. I'm writing in the process that, of number five. Yes. I mean, you're the de facto <laughs> You you have written the book on managing and delivering live events. Uh, so, wow, this is incredible. Currently, you are um, the founder. You, you run a company called Fast Traffic, right? That's right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that organization? Yeah, Fast Traffic has been just so much fun because it, it really touches on every part of the event business, every part of the venue business even. Um, we work project to project and we put project teams together for any number of, uh, of clients for the first six or seven years, we were located in lower Manhattan at the South street seaport, New York city. And, and part of the reason was that I was on the development team for the rooftop at pier 17, which is just to the South of the Brooklyn bridge, about three blocks. And uh, brand new open air concert and event facility uh, on the roof of a building that's jutting out into the East River. And it has become incredibly successful. Uh, in fact, I, I managed uh, all of the operational elements for uh, in getting the building ready to host uh, audiences of 3,400 or so. Uh, up on the roof. And now they do about 65 concerts a summer, which is a very hardworking building here in New York. I, I no longer have them as a continuing client, uh, but I did go back and, and, uh, and do some work for them this summer in terms of evaluating how they're doing from an operational perspective, guest experience, security, uh, all those kinds of things. So South Street Seaport was a big part of what we did. Uh, we've, we've been producing the 
pre-race show for the Indy 500 um, since 2016. Uh, this past summer, we were involved with the Major League Baseball draft, the Major League Baseball All-Star Red Carpet Show, uh, the NFL's Hall of Fame game in Canton, Ohio, as well as the uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame enshrinement ceremony. Uh, so we're involved in a in a ton of stuff, uh, and it's been it's been great fun because every project is different. Wow, that's amazing! And I'll probably dive into some of that a little bit later on in our conversation. You mentioned the National Football League there, the NFL. So for our our uh, global listeners, the you know American football, American <laughs> the National Football, football League. Uh, and, you know, prior to Fast Traffic, you actually worked for the National Football League as their senior vice president of events, uh, you know, working in all these Super Bowls. And I know you've got some Super Bowl stories, and I'm super excited to 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 dive into that. Before that, uh, you led the National Hockey League's events and entertainment department. Uh, you developed this NHL Heritage Classic, which was the first stadium-based outdoor pro hockey game. Uh, which was a forerunner to the really super successful NHL Winter Classic, was which is super cool to see. You know, these mm -hmm. venues, you know, filled up. Uh, you know, maybe a football stadium that's got seventy thousand people packed in there to watch a hockey game. I mean, it's really, really amazing. Uh, and then uh, pre prior to that, served as a director of special events for Radio City Music Hall. Man, you've you've done so much. You've been awarded an honorary doctorate. Uh, from Johnson uh, in uh, sports entertainment and event management from Johnson and Wales University, as I mentioned, inducted into the Event Industry Hall of Fame in 2006. Uh, in 2014, honored as New York University's Cal Ramsey Distinguished Lecturer. You've even been in movies. <laughs> you had a cameo uh, role in in the the film Draft Day, which was directed by Ivan Reitman. So, wow, it's amazing and. It's such an honor for me to have you join us today and share your story. And that story looks like a long, distinguished story. But I'm curious, uh, Frank, how you actually got involved in all of this. Like, where did this where did this come from? How did this start? Oh, it was a total accident. And I backed right into it. And I do want to say something. I I was involved in the development and and creation of the of the Winter Classic, uh, Heritage Classic, back then. Um, which was in Edmonton, Alberta, and I, I do I do want to just be on the record on it. I actually I actually was a partner to the Edmonton Oilers on that one. Uh, their head of marketing called me one day, and I will get into the beginning, but called me one day and and had this crazy idea of doing the All Star Game, the NHL All Star Game outside. And ultimately, in our conversations, we ended up developing it as a regular season game, and we did that together. Uh, so I don't want to I don't want to say that I did that alone. And f and in fact, there you you do none of these things alone. It always takes a big team of of really big thinkers, um, you know, and and creative people and as and experts as well. So I I just wanted to make sure that that was on the record. Um, Insofar as how I got started, um, I was actually a biology major in college. Um, I had I had no experience in the business world at all. Uh, but I but I was an usher at Radio City Music Hall um, at the age of fifteen, actually. So I was I was still in high school at the time, and I worked weekends and you know put the monkey suit on and walk the aisles and and 
I, there were no Fitbits or I, uh, Apple watches at the time. So I, I have no idea how many steps I took, but a lot of it was up. <laughs> um, and, you know, one of the things you learn being an usher is customer service, fan experience now we call it. But at the time, it was all about service. And, and you learn so much starting from the bottom. When, when Radio City changed its format in 1979 uh, to an all-live format, it used to be a movie and a stage show, movie and a rocket show, you may recall. Um, they started doing a lot of new and different things. And they offered me a job. I was graduating college at about the same time. And, and I had been accepted to a graduate program at Clemson University for master's in zoology. Uh, and, but I didn't have the money to go. I, w I was really kind of stuck. And I said, you know what? I, I've got this job offer from Radio City to work in, the, in management for a year. I know the building. I know the people really well. I love the place. It's just, you know, it still has a great, great bit of, amount of love in my heart. Why don't I do that for a year and I'll go back to school? And like so many people who say that, <laughs> you never go back to school. I was having just too good a time um, working in the front of house, working in the back of house, you know, learning the business by observation. And I did go back to school at night to get some business courses. I, I enrolled in an MBA program, which I didn't finish, but, but I did learn a lot about the business world from an academic perspective, as well as from, you know, learn by doing. And uh, as a consequence of that, I was, I was promoted into uh, the marketing department. I learned about concert promotion, event promotion, and those types of things. And, and the last job that they promoted me into was to help market this idea that they had to enter the special events business as a production company. So they not only did events in the building, but they also exported their creative and production expertise to third parties in other places around the world. And I was, I was uh, really honored to get the opportunity to help them market that. I was coming out of the marketing department at the time and uh, while we were doing that, they also put me on the shows themselves. So I started as a talent coordinator and then a director of talent and then associate producer and ultimately a producer um, because I was just learning. I was learning by drinking from a fire hose. We did just so much work. Uh, one of those things turned out to be a Super Bowl halftime in 1988, uh, working with uh as as a Radio City person working with the Rockettes and and others, and learning big event production while I was doing that because you didn't hire Radio City to do small things, you hired Radio City to to do big things. And some of them were corporate events like the Coca Cola Centennial or Polaroid's 50th anniversary. Some of them were big civic events like the bicentennial of the U.S. Constitution, 1987. We did the the parade in Philadelphia. Uh, uh, in September of, of 1987, and uh, and then the Super Bowl halftime in in 
uh, January of 1988, Super Bowl 22. So we're well into the 50s now. That was 22, so it was a long time ago. And um, if you remember that far back, it had 88 grand pianos in it because it was 1988, 88 keys on the piano, and, and uh, you know, 88 pianos on the field. So, you know, I learned a lot about the creative side of production as well. And, uh, you know, that's where I started. And, and ultimately, uh, I was offered the opportunity to start the NHL's event department. They didn't have one. Uh, all of their events were matrix managed. They did a lot on the team level. Uh, there was an office in Montreal that did the draft. And, and there was a decision made uh, to bring all of that into one place and hire somebody to do nothing but uh, event production and event development and execution ultimately. And I ended up doing that for 13 seasons, as you suggested, and then uh, moved on to the NFL to do another 10 seasons for them uh, back in 2005. Okay. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, Frank. Uh, <laughs> first of all, you ever look back and think, what if, <laughs> what if I would have pursued this career in biology and zoology? It hits close to home to me because I, I've got a daughter who's in her final semester of uh, biology undergrad <laughs> and That's still doesn't major. exactly know what she wants to do with it, you know? Mm. So now I can tell her, well, you can always go into events, you know, because <laughs> they're hiring biology majors uh, in events. But you ever think back to say, well, gosh, uh, I wonder what life would have been like if I would have pursued that biology route yeah all the time but you know it, it's all about learning what you love to learn and doing what you love to do and they don't have to be the same thing that's okay um it it makes you a more well-rounded person you know to me when i'm thinking about um contingency planning for example when it comes to events you know i take a very scientific approach to that you know you change one variable at a time that's the scientific approach and and see what that does. So I, I think it, I think that background benefited me. But I will say that, you know, nowadays there's actually and I I primarily operate in the sports world, but there are sports management programs. I actually teach in one at a, at Adelphi University. I'm an adjunct. Um and there are event management programs at Temple University in Philadelphia, for example, has a terrific one. Uh there was none of that training when I got out of college or when I was in college. And if there had been, nobody would have hired me to do any of the things I did because there would have been people academically trained to do it. Um, it was a very, very young industry in the late seventies, early eighties. And, uh, you know, they just had to put people who they felt they could trust to do these things and learn these things and figure these things out. But there, there, there wasn't that kind of academic training. Uh, and I'm grateful that, that there wasn't, <laughs> to be honest. Okay. Wow. Well, the second part that I want to come back to, so that that's really, really helpful. And I'm, I'm glad that you were able to extrapolate uh, knowledge that you learned through university and biology and apply it. Uh, I've, I, I experienced a similar thing. I graduated with a degree in accounting and uh, somehow fell into this event thing myself. And, that being said, was able to apply a lot of the concepts I learned uh, in, in accounting. But I want to come back to the career part of it, where you you're with Radio City Music Hall for a long time, and then you make this decision to 
take this offer and go to the National Hockey League. And I'm curious what was going through your mind there. Did you think that, oh, I, I'm just going to be with Radio City Music Hall forever, and I love this job, and it's awesome. Now this other opportunity presents itself. You know, what is your thought process going there saying, do I stay doing something that I know and I love and I've had opportunities to learn and grow and they've given me opportunities, but now it's time to turn a new leaf and, and take this other opportunity. You know, what was your mindset going into all of that? Well, there was a step in between. There was a, there was a small event company uh, called Adventures that, that was founded by the producer that I worked for at Radio City. So he had left. He had started his own company. He offered me the opportunity to come and work with him and uh, own a piece of the company, which I did with another partner. So there were three of us and it was based in New York. And we did a lot of the same kinds of things. And what we determined uh, and, and what, what we had thought and actually it had been validated was, you know, it's, it's a people business. You, you don't hire companies or you might in the beginning, but you develop relationships and those relationships are what drives your business. And either you have great relationships and you drive a great business or you have bad relationships and it affects you in, in the other way. Uh, so we did a lot of the same kinds of things. Now, you're right. I was at Radio City a very long time. Uh, I felt that I had stagnated a little bit, that it was it was hard to get to the next step once I got to a certain level. Uh, they weren't they weren't uh, ready to turn the keys over to me, and that's okay. Uh, I just felt that I could I could learn more and contribute more by being somewhere else. Now, having said that, leaving Radio City was really hard, and I remember when I had made that decision, I felt like I sold my mother's house. <laughs> it was really I was really sad about it, and and but I did I I never really looked back. And uh, I never really took a job ever uh, where I thought I was just going to be there for a little while. I always felt that I would, wherever I was going to go, I was going to nest. Um, when other opportunities came up that seemed like the next progression, if you will, uh, I, I thought about it. And, and I didn't always do it, uh, but, I, but I clearly did it a few times. Well, let's... Let's hop into the NHL then, uh, because, you know, one of the things that you sent me uh, prior to to us uh, recording this, you know, you, you sent a few stories, which I thought were amazing. And one of those uh, was about learning the hard way that hope is not a strategy uh, and that uh, that learning came through your first NHL all-star game in Montreal. And so I'm, I'm curious for you, and I can't wait to hear the story behind this, this important lesson learned that hope is not a strategy. Yeah. I'm not the first person to say it, but it, it's a hundred percent true. Uh, I was, I was relatively new at the, at, at the NHL. I, I had been there almost a year and, uh, we were getting ready to play the all-star game. It was 1993 in, in Montreal at the Montreal forum, which is the temple of hockey or was the temple of hockey before they, the Montreal Canadians moved somewhere else. And uh, it was the 75th anniversary of the league, but it was also the hundredth birthday of the Stanley cup. The Stanley cup actually predates the NHL by about a quarter century. 
And so you have this priceless sterling silver trophy, the holy grail of that sport. Um, and it was, it was the all-star game was being played on the hundredth anniversary of the Stanley cup in the city in which uh, the most Stanley cup champions were crowned. So it was, it was very, very meaningful. And, and I, again, being, I wasn't new to the sport. I was a, I was a fan, but there's so much that you don't know when you're a fan, you just, you're not on the inside of the culture. Um, but I felt it was a really important thing to, to commemorate and celebrate that birthday, that anniversary. So I had this idea that we would have three Montreal Canadiens alumni whose names are engraved on the Stanley Cup multiple times skate around the, the rink with the cup above their heads to start the national broadcast. I thought that would really be cool. Um, and, and apparently so do the Montreal Canadiens. So they, they helped me procure Maurice the Rocket Richard, Guy Lafleur, and Jean Bellevaux, who were some of the greatest Montreal Canadiens ever. And uh, they were in Canadians gear and they were, they were sitting in the, in the Zamboni tunnel about 10 minutes, you know, prior to the game starting. And the, and I got this radio call about 10 minutes ahead um, from the stage manager down there, wondering where the Stanley cup was. Nobody knew where it was and we're about to go on national television. Um, now I knew where it was. It, it had been, at my boss's sponsor brunch at a hotel across town. And I had asked him not to have it there or to let me have it earlier because like any event person, you want your stuff and your people, you know, there well ahead of time. So you're not like struggling if something happens. Um, but he didn't want to do that. And, and frankly, you know, it was my new boss. So I was, really being overly respectful as anybody would. And, but I said, you know, I don't know. I, I hope it's, I hope it'll be there on time. I don't know if it's going to be, but you know, I, I, I imagined it would be, and I really hoped. Um, and of course I just made that, made that assumption, you know, he's going to make sure it gets there because I told him what I needed it for and all of that. And, and it's not there. And I'm about to dump this segment just before we go on on television. And sure enough, I get a radio call that the Stanley Cup's in the building. It's about 30 seconds before we go to air. And I said, great, get it out of the road box, get it into the hands of, of Maurice Richard, and let's go. And so out it comes. Um, Maurice Richard grabs the trophy, steps out onto the ice, holds it above his head, and he drops it. And it falls to the ice. And it makes a sound like I imagine the Liberty Bell might have um, when it was cracked. And and sure enough, we damage this hundred-year-old trophy. Uh, not all, actually, the trophy, today's trophy is not quite a hundred years old. The original bowl is somewhere else, but but it's still old. It's still priceless. It's still sterling, sterling silver, and it's still dented. Um, and I thought I was going to die. Um, on national television. I'm not on national television. The cup is. 
Um, and then I look up and they're showing it on instant replay over and over again in slow motion. And it's just one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. Apparently what happened, what there, it was minus 25 degrees in Montreal that day. And there was a, there was the streets are covered in ice. And when the cupkeeper throws the cup in the in the back of a cab the cab is just sitting in traffic so and i know none of this so uh, the cupkeeper realizes he's not going to get there in time if he sits in the cab so he's takes the road box out of the cab and he's pushing it down the street on the ice and gets it to the forum just in time but what it did in the meantime was the trophy got chilled to minus 25 so with no time for it to be warmed up, it gets into the hands of Maurice Richard and he can't hold it. It's just too darn cold. I'm surprised he didn't stick to it. And down the trophy went. Hope is not a strategy, right? I, if, if I didn't think, if I wasn't 100% sure that the trophy was going to be there on time, I should have done it at a different part of the game, right? During an intermission and or, you know, during a whistle stoppage or something like that. It's an all-star game. I can get away with that. But because I wanted to do it at the beginning and I had no contingency plan to do it anywhere else, I had a bad plan. So I, I hoped it had worked out and it didn't. And my I, I should have known better, to be honest. So it's not my boss's fault was my fault and and that's where i learned that that lesson <laughs> well you're telling me this story and especially the end there and it's making me think back to your biology uh and scientific training you talked about the variables <laughs> nobody accounted for the variable <laughs> that was, the trophy would be chilled to minus 25 and nobody could actually hold on to the thing because it would be you know, physically impossible to hold it it's just too that's cold. right <laughs> So, wow. Uh, what a great lesson. You know, I, I wanted to, I wanted to touch uh, on the NHL thing, the, the, the creation of this heritage classic, you know, it's something that, that had been highlighted in, in your bio. And I, and I wanted to understand what was the genesis of that? You know, how did the, how did that idea come about mm -hmm. and how did you end up uh, planning and ultimately delivering uh, what has now, you know, turned into a, a really iconic event uh, for, for hockey here. In, yeah, in this, this is a lesson of knowing who your audience is. And, and I think that's true if you're an event person, whether you do big public events or you're doing private events for a specific group. Knowing your audience is really important. So, so I mentioned before that I had gotten this call from the head of marketing at, at the Edmonton Oilers. His name was Alan Watt. His name is Alan Watts still. Um, and he said, all right, we have this crazy idea of doing the all-star game outside in, um, in a stadium. And uh, a stadium game had been done already, actually. Michigan, Michigan State had done an outdoor stadium game, but it had never been done on the professional level. And... Uh, I said to myself, boy, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Um, and the reason I said that is because I did know my audience. All-star games are not 
as much public events as they are big corporate hospitality events. So that's when leagues entertain their sponsors, their broadcasters, their all of their partners. And I would say somewhere around half to a two thirds of the audience are invited guests that wouldn't normally be paying for a ticket. Fans make up the rest of it. And I said to myself, I don't see sponsors sitting outside in the winter, in the cold, um, to watch an all-star game, which competitively is meaningless, right? It's, it's, they're not even that good in terms of being good games. I think by the, by the second or maybe even the third period, people would be pretty much gone. And uh, so I, I said to myself, this is really not a good idea. And so we hung up the phone and, and then I called Alan back about two weeks later. And I said, you know, all right, now it's my turn for a stupid idea. How about we think about playing this for two points? It's a regular season game. What, what Can we do it as a regular season game? And Alan, to his credit, said, you know, I was going to call you and ask you the same thing. Um, so we spent a year really studying every contingency of what it would take. And you know, what if it rained? What if we had a blizzard? What if it snowed? What if it was too warm? What if it wasn't warm enough? Um, uh, what, what if it was too cold? Um, and so we went through everything and we hired a, a physician from, uh, he, was a, he was an Arctic surgeon or Arctic doctor that, that specialized in, in how people react to deep cold. He worked up in the uh, Northern Alberta um, and so we looked at that and we looked at, you know, what would happen if it was pouring rain? What would happen if, it, you know, we had 12 inches of snow? Would we play the game? You know, all of those kinds of things. And, uh, and so we spent a year on that and then we, uh, convinced the commissioner that we had a good plan. Um, uh, he didn't want to be embarrassed, didn't want to embarrass the NHL and I don't blame him. And then it got on the schedule. Now we we played that game in late November, and in late no we picked that date uh, for two reasons. One is we wanted the Edmonton Oilers to play the Montreal Canadiens, so it'd be two great Stanley Cup teams uh, with Stanley Cup heritages, if you will. The second was we wanted it to be cold enough, but we didn't. We felt that I think it was November twenty second. It was going to be. It wouldn't be deep, 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 deep cold. And boy, were we surprised. It was minus nine when we, when we dropped the puck. It was very cold. I, I think that was the longest and deepest I've been cold. I've been in minus 30, but, but this was minus nine, and I was out there all day and, and into the night. Um, it, it was really something i mean not 50 i think it was 57,000 fans filled commonwealth stadium I, it was capacity they we played or they played an alumni game first so there were there was a canadians alumni edmonton oilers alumni uh played that game we had fans that were sitting in mummy bags you know just just incredibly cold but but that's you know, that's knowing your audience. In Edmonton, they come out in that. 
Um, I think if we did it for the first time somewhere in the U.S., it wouldn't have gone as well as it does now, now that there's this tradition of doing these these outdoor winter games. But if it was minus nine in even in New York or Boston or or Detroit or Chicago, some of the older hockey, you know, traditional hockey towns in, in, in the United States, I don't think we would have succeeded in in doing it for the first time at Edmonton in that it was a point of Canadian pride and um, it sold out and people were there. It, there was not an empty seat at the end of the game. Well, what a fascinating story and what a, it's, it, one of the things that's really interesting to me about it is uh, this point you, that you made, which hey, I know my audience and having the the wherewithal, I don't know if courage is the right word, but to say to the powers that be, hey, you know, why don't we take this in a slightly different direction that I think could make this event more successful? Because, you know, you could have just shied away from it and said, okay, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do this for the All-Star Game. And it could have turned out very, very differently. And and so, you know, I congratulate you for, for you know, for having that conviction, you know, uh, you know, and having this gut feeling, this intuition based on your experience to say, you know what, that idea is interesting. Let me propose another one that could be potentially more successful. Yeah, we got, we got lucky with that one, I think. <laughs> okay. So you're with the NHL for a long period of time, and then you transition to the NFL, the National Football League. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that transition, you know, moving on from NHL and then and then going to work for the for the NFL. Yeah, that was a it was a incredible opportunity um, that again, I thought I'd be at the NHL till I retired. Um, I, I loved the sport and I loved the, the fans and I loved the players and the culture of the place. You know, the people ask me what what the differences are between the two leagues. And, and in Canada, and I'm, I'm an American, but in Canada, the NHL is the NFL. Like, it's dominant. And, uh, you know, I recognize that it was a great responsibility, especially as an American, you know, working on a, on, on a Canadian heirloom, if you will, the heirloom sport. Um, but as I mentioned, you know, when you're a fan, and, and I was a fan of hockey as I was a fan of football, uh, you don't really understand the inner workings as well. I mean, people think they do, but they really don't until you're in it. And they they all ha are very culturally different. You know, you would do a um, a championship practice in public in hockey. You would never do that in football. Um, and, you know, there was a lot that I really didn't understand. Um, as I went in there and, and, and I didn't know what I didn't know. When I got to the NFL, I did know that I said, I'm not going to make that mistake twice. So, uh, the first thing I did when I got there was I, I spoke with the head of the football operations department, uh, two gentlemen, Art Shell, hall of fame coach, you know, former coach. Um, and, and a gentleman named Peter Hadhazy who were, who were in charge of football operations. And I said, um, do you have a game operations manual? 
And they said, yeah, well, of course we do. And I said, well, would you give me the game operations manual? I'd like to read it. And every sport has the analogous document, kind of the rules of the road and what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do and all of that. And, and I, I, my first day at work was in Jacksonville um, just before Super Bowl 39. And I, I took the book with me and I read it in my hotel room every night till I got to the end of it. And then I, I arranged a meeting with the football operations team and said, all right, I have a few questions on the book. And they kind of looked at me and said, you actually read that? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I, I, I did. And they were like, nobody reads that. Like they were really, I, I guess they were impressed because I was sort of the hockey guy coming in and it's like, what does the hockey guy know about football? Well, the, the hockey guy was learned about what he needed to know. You know, there's ways that you take care of the ice. Well, there's ways you take care of the turf. And there are things you can do and there's things you can't do. And and here's what you can do pregame. And here's how you do what you can do pregame. And, you know, all of those types of things. There, there were rules of the road. And I think they were really impressed that that I took the time, energy, and effort. And And parenthetically, when I went to work, on the Indy 500, I did the same thing, you know, and said, I need to talk to the race operations director um, so I could know what I don't know. Um, and that's really important. You know, when you go from, from, and, and I, I imagine many of your listeners aren't in the same kind of situation I was where you've got basically one client, right? Your client is hockey, your client is football, your client is, you know, whatever sport it is. Um, it's again, you know, understanding the culture of the place you're in. And, uh, and, and because they take those things really, really seriously. And that, that was, that was the first thing. The second, which was really interesting and eye-opening. Um, I, my predecessor was still on board when, when the ball was kicked off in Jacksonville for Super Bowl 39. It was the, it was the Patriots and the Eagles. And uh, I didn't want, to get in the way, but I wanted to be exposed to everything that I thought I could be. So I did take a walkie talkie and I put it on and I listened to it the entire day. And most of the time I was down on the sidelines, but, um, you know, wandered around the stadium, but I would listen to everything. And I remember when, when I was looking out of my hotel room, uh, window, I was say, looking around at what the Super Bowl was. And it was everywhere and it was big and there were tons of people. And I'm like, oh my God, this thing is so huge. How am I ever going to manage this? I managed all-star games and Stanley Cups and things like that. And those were big, but this was on a level all to itself. And, and Roger Goodell, who was not yet commissioner, he was my boss at the time, said, you know, you're here to take this to a new level. And I said to myself, I don't know what that level is. This is a level unto itself. Like, how do I get it to whatever the next thing is, the next milestone? So I listened to this radio and every call that went up to the command center, to the control area, I'd heard everything like that before. There was just more of it. I mean, there was more radio traffic than I've ever heard, but 
all of the questions, all of the issues, I've heard them before. And I said, okay, now I get it. Now I understand I have to take this in pieces and just apply what I've been doing to something bigger and more exposed. And it made me feel better. It made me feel like I could do it. Um, the other thing I did when I started conducting my first Super Bowl meetings with, I don't know, gosh, there were 150, 200 people in the room. I said, you know, I need to let people know that I don't know everything. It's my first Super Bowl coming up. I'd been exposed to a few of them. I worked on a halftime show. I had been down in Jacksonville kind of observing. And I said, I, I really need to let people know that I'm a human and that I don't know everything and I don't think I know everything. And my predecessor, who had been there for more than 20 years, had everything up here. So I started off the first meeting with a slide that said, assume nothing, double check everything. And I, I said that because I didn't want people to think that just because something automatically happened in the past that they relied on, that they needed something and it was there, that I would know that they needed it and that I would know it would need to be there. So I said, assume nothing, double check everything. And then I said, you know, I'm going to start every meeting with that. So I did. And it became kind of a mantra. And it was successful. People, people really rose to the occasion and helped me help them do their jobs. And so I said, you know, the, the next year, let's come up with a new one. And, and because, based on the problems that I saw or the challenges I saw. And the next one was communicate or die. Um, and that became the mantra for that year. I started every meeting with that, communicate or die. And, and ultimately, I ended up having a different one every year. Um, and it, it focused the team. In the beginning, it covered my butt. As it, as it progressed, it focused the team on how we should do business together and how we're going to execute this together, recognizing that some of the best event people in the world were pulling this thing together every year. And, you know, one of the last ones um, was fans first. Think about everything you're doing and how does it affect the fan? Um, even if you're just planning stuff, even if it's behind the scenes stuff, everything we do affects the fan. Everything we do affects the experience of the guest. That we sometimes forgot that. And after a year when it was apparent we did forget it, we changed the mantra for the following year. And I felt that those were really great ways of getting the team focused on, on the work ahead. I love that. Uh, you know, the fans first thing is quite interesting. You know, coming from an Olympic environment, the, it's always, you know, the talk is always athletes first, right? It's athletes are the heart of the games. And you know, it's all about the athlete experience and everything uh, goes around, you know, it, it, it's kind of in the orbit uh, of the athlete, you know. So I think this is very, very interesting, this 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 fans first approach. Uh, I like it. You sent me a couple of stories I want to make sure we get to uh, that are part of your NFL experience. And one of those was uh, uh, involving Hurricane Katrina. And so I'm wondering if you can tell the story uh about the uh the telethon uh 
that was staged mm -hmm. on uh, Monday Night Football game uh, with respect to Hurricane Katrina. Yeah, I was relatively new to the league. Um, I started in January 2005, and in September 2005, Katrina hit New Orleans. And as many people may recall, the Superdome was a refuge of last resort. It was horror, horror you know, what people went through there. And I, I was in Los Angeles where we were preparing to uh, stage the NFL kickoff, which was a big concert, uh, right before the first game of the season on opening day. And I, we were in rehearsal. It was, I think it was the night before the, the kickoff. And I got a call from Joe Brown, who was the head of PR at the NFL. And he said, when are you getting back to New York? We need you. And I said, I, I was going to come back after, you know, kickoff. And he said, well, get on the red eye then and get back here because we need to plan a telethon and it's happening in 10 days. And I said, okay, where it's the Bush Clinton Katrina fund, um, which was, you know, George Bush and Bill Clinton um, working together on a, a way of raising funds for uh, the, the recovery of new Orleans. And uh, I said, he, he said the telethons in 10 days. And I said, okay, well, where are we doing it? And he said, well, that's your first, that's your, that's the first thing you have to figure out <laughs> and uh, it's on you. So, you know, get back here as soon as you can. So I did um, next night, took the red eye back, went right to the office, um, went right into meetings. Where are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? Um, you know, I recognize that there's, there's a function a, a fundraising function. So it's not just about what's going to be in front of the camera, but it's also going to be what's behind the scenes in terms of accepting payments and donations and that sort of thing and how you're going to get that done where no system exists. And we were able to actually work with ABC um, and borrow, honest to God, the Good Morning America set in Times Square. And, you know, as soon as Good Morning America was done for the day, we moved in. <laughs> <laughs> and and set up the telethon and by the way it had to be moved back out overnight um so that they could do good morning america the next day too um the the reason it was being done in 10 days was new orleans was playing the giants they were supposed to play it at the superdome and the superdome had holes in it and it was it was a disaster zone so they moved the game to the meadowlands and uh and played the game in new york and then pre-game and during the uh intermission between there were two games that night um in between the the two games we we activated this this telethon uh at the good morning america set um it took everybody every department at the nfl to get this on you know get this thing going and the partnership of abc which was huge um to be able to give us this opportunity to use their facilities um and uh what we did at the time because we had no payment mechanism is we worked with ticketmaster to do that so ticketmaster was kind of the back of house very quietly they didn't really want people to know that they were doing it but now people know um 
if they're listening to this podcast. So, you know, make sure that everybody knows. Um, and they, you know, everybody just pitched in every vendor, every partner that we had, you know, pitched in to make it happen. And I have to say, um, there was kind of this story arc from that night until a year later, I, I went down to New Orleans right after that, um, with a, with a small team of people who were sent down to take a look at the dome and figure out whether the game, any games could be played there that season. It was right at the beginning of the 2005 season. And, and there was no possible way. Actually, when we got to New Orleans, you could fire a cannon down the middle of the airport concourse and not hit anybody. I mean, there was nobody moving in, nobody moving out. And uh, we determined that the stadium wasn't usable. And we were told by the commissioner to find ways to make sure that by next season it was going to be usable. And it was. A year later, the NFL staged a big party outside the Dome. Uh, the Goo Goo Dolls played. Everybody in the city was was uh, offered the opportunity to come. I think we had about 25,000 people there. And this is before the doors opened for the first game coming back after Katrina a year later. And um, when we opened the doors, there was a pregame show on ESPN, which people may remember. It had U2 and Green Day. Um, singing the saints are coming and and uh goo dolls outside did better days which was you know tremendous i mean it wasn't a dry eye in the house it was it was just an incredible experience um that was the night i've been told by many people because i went back and and did a super bowl some years later there um that was the night that the people of new orleans or people in new orleans felt that things were going to be okay again because the city had been devastated and so many people moved away that never came back and doing that first game back may have been the most important and meaningful thing that I had ever done or ever been associated with. It wasn't a Super Bowl. It was, it was the, the place that that, that that stadium, that team, that event had in people's psyches down there it really kind of repaired their hearts and souls and that was that was a remarkable thing to be associated with it's an absolutely beautiful story and um i really appreciate you sharing it uh i'm trying to remember uh yeah, where did the uh, where did the Saints play during that season? Uh, because they couldn't play in the Superdome. Yeah, first they played in San Antonio, and then they moved to Baton Rouge, and played at LS, uh, LSU. And we were we were helping them every place we could. You know, we sent our ticket director down there to help them because you know they had all these. They were we were in the middle of the season, or the season had started. So reticketing everybody and and you know who who had tickets uh who wanted to keep their tickets and you know selling additional tickets and making sure that the team was was well supported that was it was a big thing i mean it really took a lot of people at the league to make that happen 
And, you know, the lay person or the, the casual or even the super fan, they don't really understand the, the level of effort that's required to do something like that. So I appreciate you shedding a little bit of light on it. You did mention that uh, the Super Bowl did return to New Orleans eventually, and, uh, which was fantastic. Uh, the Super Bowl was also infamous in New Orleans because the power went out. And I remember watching that game thinking, what in the world happened? You know, and as an event person, I just felt, I was just thinking to myself, what is going through everybody's mind when the power goes out? <laughs> there is the organizers. Uh, I, I'm curious, you know, what's your what what's your uh, uh, you know, as you look back, what's your memory of that of that experience in in New Orleans? You know, when when something goes wrong, you hope you're the only one who notices it. Um, that's not the case when it happens at the Super Bowl. Um, there's 115 million people watching on television. There's 70,000 people outside your window waiting for you to fix things. Um, and interestingly enough, if that's not pressure enough for you, I had a crew from 60 minutes standing right next to me at the time that the lights went out. Um, Armin Katayan was the, was the correspondent and, you know, suddenly the behind the scenes, uh, item that they were doing for a, a show called 60 Minutes Sports on Showtime became something else. Um, the ball had just been kicked off for the second half right after a, the, the halftime show uh, that Beyonce did, which was tremendous. And, and a, lot of, a lot of people blamed her show for knocking out the lights. That's not what happened at all. <clears throat> In fact, the... Uh, the halftime show was on its own generators because it took up a whole lot of power. <laughs> and what happened uh, was when the lights were restored to start the second half, when they were re-illuminated and a lot of other things came back online uh, after the halftime show, a, a relay on one of the feeder cables. <clears throat> so a giant circuit breaker saw power consumption increasing dramatically over a short period of time. And it's designed to shut itself off if that happens, because it thinks there's a power surge and we're talking about a power surge of monumental proportions. And so it had just been replaced. So post Katrina, the electrical system had not been replaced. So of course, about six weeks before the Super Bowl, the, power company replaced all the relays, all the power cables. And it was installed with factory settings, like, you know, just about any piece of equipment. Uh, it wasn't built or didn't anticipate what happened. So it shut itself off. And luckily we had, you know, we had law enforcement there and and security professionals who determined it wasn't a fire, it wasn't a cyber attack, it wasn't a terror attack. Um, we had to know that right away because you, ha you have 70,000 people there. And if they're looking at Twitter and Facebook and other social media platforms to determine what their next move is going to be, and I'm not talking to them, that's a problem. And, and so within... 90 seconds, we knew that we had a safe environment. We wanted to tell people to stay in place and not leave. Um, the reason we could do that is because stadiums and arenas are equipped with 
uh, battery backup public address systems that are good for about a half an hour for just this purpose. You don't want the power to go out. You can't talk to people. People will make their own decisions. If they stampede to the doors, you've got a problem. So the first thing we did before we even knew what the problem was, was we told people to stay in place because again, we knew it was a safe environment. Um, and then we determined that, that there was a power feeder that had, had failed. There were two that come into the Superdome. We had a backup. The backup had been installed during this same process, just about six weeks before. Never had a backup before. Thank God we did. Um, but what's really remarkable is that the operations team for the stadium has a procedure when, if something like this were to happen, and that's to shut off all the unnecessary un, non-life safety um, power drains escalators and lighting in the concourses and um beer taps although a lot of people would argue that that's pretty important um refrigeration hvac all that stuff got shut off and it's a good thing they did because what was after the investigation some weeks later it was determined if they hadn't the other side would have failed too and then we're in darkness and there's one feeder cable that can be used as a backup, not two. Game would have been over. Um, they they were the ones who kept us from having a complete disaster. Now, after 24 minutes, you know we are the operations team restored the power. Um, and after 24 minutes, we're ready to go. And of course, CBS, who has more than 100 million people watching, they want us to get started in a hurry. And we did not do that. We spent another 10 minutes to make sure that all the information systems, all of the electronic systems were back up and running. Score clock, coach to quarterback systems, instant replay, all of that sort of stuff. Because if we didn't do that, and there was another score or another or, or a penalty, a controversial play, whatever it was. And the officials go to take a look at the instant replay and there is none. Now you've got a different problem, right? You have a potentially inauthentic game. We still have Ray Lewis from the Baltimore Ravens is still convinced that we did this on purpose, right? To, to change the momentum of the game because the Ravens were just killing the 49ers. And, and then the 49ers caught up in the second half. So he's convinced we did it on purpose. Not so. Um, and we spent another 10 minutes going through every system before we start kicked the ball off again. And it's a good thing we did because there was one coach to quarterback system didn't work. And we got it, we got it up and running. We got it, we got it to work and it was, everything was fine from that point forward. Um, but that was really important. You know, it's, it's that lesson is respond to the problem. Don't react to the problem. Right. And if we had reacted and it was like television is saying, get the ball kicked off, get the ball kicked off, get the ball kicked off. And we're like, hold on. <laughs> it's the Super Bowl. We've been dead in the water for 24 minutes. What's another 10? Let's get this right. Um, and that's what we did. You know, one of the reasons I, I love this story as you're as you're retelling it. 
I come back to the casual fan, you know, the or the the person who's not involved in this business, thinking, why is it taking him so long to get the power back on? Right? Uh, like, what's going on? Don't they don't they have any idea what they're doing? And then you look at it from the other perspective. It's like it's actually pretty miraculous. You got the power back on, and you got everything up and running and functioning properly in this amount of time. Because you know, in these events. I, you know, I, I come from more of an Olympic space, but you, you'll do a technical rehearsal, you know, uh, and it's several days. And then you'll do another technical rehearsal in several days. And if you find a problem, it takes time to fix those problems. You know, so being able to actually have this happen and then recover, in my perspective, you know, in a short period of time, that, you know, kudos to you and to the well, team for actually being team, able to pull really. that off. Yeah, to the team that it was, it really was a team sport without question. And, and we got lucky um, because I mentioned that we had a crew from 60 minutes right behind, right beside us. They documented the whole thing. And we, we didn't even look at the camera. We, I forgot the cameras were even there. And, and I, I remember when it was going, when that episode was going to air, I got a call from one of the producers uh, of the show. And he said, um, I, I want you to know that, that, you know, we documented what you guys did and I don't know what kind of pressure you're under right now, but I, I wanted you to know that I think we did a fair job of documenting what happened. Um, and he, he couldn't have been nicer. Uh, Alan Goldberg, he said, I, I want you to call me when the show is finished. And let me know if you're okay. <laughs> and I said to myself, holy smoke, am I in trouble? Um, you know, I, it, it, my boss is going to see this. My colleagues are going to see it. My neighbors are going to see it. My family's going to see it. Oh my God. You know, what is he warning me about? And, and so I, I sat on the edge of my couch watching this with my, my wife had her arms around me the entire time. And it, and you know what? It was fair. Um, they, they documented it. It ended up being a good thing that, you know, nobody could say, well, what were they doing up there? You know, to your point, Christian, what were, what were they doing up there for 24 minutes or 34 minutes? And, and it, which is what it, what it was, you know, once we got started again and it, it ended up being a good day. Um, and, you know, part of that is because we did we did tabletop exercises for you know emergencies crisis management type of emergencies and we did it every year i don't i don't know if they still do it but i i made sure we did it every year and the whole team went right back into problem solving mode like we did during this tabletop simulation and although we never rehearsed a power failure we rehearsed how we respond to problems and it, it made all the difference. We just went right back into problem solving mode. Well, that that's, again, it's, it's fascinating. And I really appreciate you sharing that experience. You mentioned, well, I, I don't know what they're doing in the NFL anymore because you eventually left the NFL. And, and so I'm curious about that. You're again with the NFL for a long period of time and then you leave, you, you, I don't know. I don't know what the timing is between that and founding this new uh, company, Fast Traffic. Um, but you know, talk talk to us a little bit about that transition. I 
I meant to start my own firm before I left the NFL. And, and I was very fortunate to be entrusted with the management of nine Super Bowls, um, as well as NFL drafts and things of that nature and, and lots of other stuff. And I, I am so appreciative of what the NFL did for me um, and, and the trust that they had in me. And, uh, but I felt after 23 years of working for sports leagues and 10 plus working for Radio City, I wanted to try new things. I, I just wanted to try new things. I didn't think I could grow anymore doing the same thing uh, every year. And, and, you know, the difference between running your own firm and working for sports leagues for 23 years is when you're working for the sports league, you're on a treadmill you can't control. When you're working for yourself, you're working on a treadmill you can control. It's still a treadmill, but you can determine what you do and, and what you take on. And I said, you know, that's really what I want the back half, half is being generous, back half of my, of my career to be. And um, so I, I, I talked to a number of people that I trusted in the, in the event world and in the venue world and in the uh, sports world. And um, they were all very encouraging to me and said, well, when you're ready, call me. And so I, I said to myself after the, after the Super Bowl in New York, uh, which was actually in New Jersey, but New York market, um, where it's the first outdoor winter Super Bowl, where the contingency planning was off the chart, right? Because you have to, just like we did for the winter classic or the heritage classic, except Super Bowl is, like I said, on a level unto itself. If, if we have to, if, if I've been able to, to manage that well, that's the pinnacle for me for Super Bowls. Um, it's time. And, and everything worked out fine. I mean, you know, obviously there's always stuff that goes wrong. Um, and there were, but I, I felt like I had done a good job and it's time. So that's, that's what I did. And then I had the opportunity to be on the development team for the rooftop. I had, I had the opportunity to start working on the indie. Um, I started working with the pro football hall of fame, you know, all of those really relatively quickly. Um, so, you know, the, the period of time you ask between my walking out the door on park Avenue, my walking in the door <laughs> at fast traffic was overnight. Well, one other story I want to get to that you that you talked to, to me about before or uh, through an email exchange uh, highlights the global nature because everything we've talked about up until now has happened in North America. Everything that we've that we've discussed, but but you've also had experience globally as well, and you have an interesting story uh, that happened in Innsbruck, and so I, I want to dive into that one. Yeah, I, I was I was blessed to be able to to work at the NFL in the UK and Mexico on on games uh, at the at the NHL, uh, which just did a game in Melbourne, Australia, which uh, I, I 
done some work in Australia and it's fascinating. Um, they, they had games in Japan and Finland, Sweden, um, German, uh, and Austria actually. And, uh, I had the opportunity to work on, on all of those. And every one of those countries has a different culture and they have different assumptions and they have different languages. Um, worked in the UK for, uh, on, on some things as well, which was, you know, again, culturally different, but, but, you know, at least you're talking the same language. And so I learned that there are different ways of working in different countries and you work on the Olympics. So, you know, that I, I was, again, I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, and just, you know, one quick story, uh, about how clear communication is really important, right? And, uh, culture you have to understand how they do business but but clear communication is really important i had asked the promoter for that game in innsbruck for a bilingual announcer um we had two teams that were from uh that that were from north america um i neither of them were from french canada so we had to make sure that the players could hear the penalty announcements and the, you know, goals and assists and any other important information, one minute to go in the period, that sort of thing, uh, that they would hear it in English and then the audience would hear it in German. So I, of course, asked the, the promoter for a bilingual announcer. And I said, look, I I'd like to see him the day before the game, uh, have him come out to the, to the, to the arena. And, uh, and just so I could talk them through the, the rules as they are played in North America. In, in Europe, they play on a different surface. The rules are a little bit different. The countdown clock, instead of going to zero, goes up to 20, down, you know, per period, that sort of thing. So I just wanted to make sure that he was aware of all of those things. And, and in walks Carl, really good guy. Um, his English is okay. We, we understand each other. And I said, okay, so first you make this announcement in, uh, English, and then you make it in German. And he says, no, Frank, I do the German, you do the Canadian. And I said, uh, but, but I thought you know, you would be comfortable as a bilingual announcer. And he said, yes, in German and Italian, because we were very close to the Italian border. So in Innsbruck, bilingual means German and Italian. It does not mean English. So I ended up being the English speaking announcer for that game. And uh, Carl sat beside me uh, you know, as the German announcer, I didn't have him announce in Italian. There was no real reason for that. And I remember my boss coming, <laughs> coming down, um, to the, to the timekeeper's bench where we were after the game. And he said, where did you find that English speaking announcer? His accent was impeccable. <laughs> <laughs> and I never told him it was me, but it was me. Well, now it's, now all is revealed. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, what an amazing story. Gosh, I'm, I, I, I can't believe the time has gone for me so quickly. I, I could sit here and listen to these stories for days. Uh, 
before we before we wrap up our 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 conversation any other stories or experiences uh you feel you want to share with our listeners and viewers i i think the you know for those of us who have people knocking on our door um students perhaps that are listening get involved you know get your foot in the door i start i got into this as an usher um you're the sum total of all of your experiences everything you ever learn everything you ever do is transferable to the next thing and and i would say you know get in there get in there get your foot in the door and do whatever whatever it is roll up your sleeve and nothing is beneath you uh, i think that's great advice uh i i remember I started out in Salt Lake, uh, 2002, uh, I left IBM to go work for an Olympic games. And, and one of the mantras there was no job is too small. Right. And, uh, so whether it's you announcing, you know, okay, well, somebody's got to do this, I guess I'll step in and, and, and I'll be the, I'll be the PA guy, <laughs> the PA announcer in Innsbruck. Or I, re I remember, uh, you know, the, the, the guy that ran the rice Eccles stadium, uh, venue for the opening ceremony for the Sully 2002 games and and uh comes in you know five o'clock in the morning he's out there shoveling snow because somebody needs to shovel the snow uh i think that's fantastic advice and and i really appreciate you sharing that i know we talked about a little bit at the beginning but tell us a little bit more about fast traffic the kinds of services that you're providing and should any of our listeners or viewers uh, be interested in connecting with you and learning more about how you could potentially help them, you know, tell us what's the best way for them to, to reach out and connect with you. Sure. Well, we, we again, work on, on projects. So whether it's an event project or a venue development project or a design project, you know, we put the right teams of people together, you know, the best in the industry. Um, that's at least what I try to do. Um, to meet the needs of whatever that project is. So as I mentioned, you know, we worked for the Howard Hughes Corporation on the on the South Street Seaport, the rooftop at Pier 17. That was venue development. Um, we we consulted to the um, Milwaukee Bucks when they were building the Deer District outside the uh, uh, their new Pfizer Forum uh, because they wanted a big place that was kind of event ready. Um, it's a big plaza out in front of the building. We had nothing to do with the inside. We were just consulted on what to do with the outside, what kind of infrastructure was, was required. Um, we do, uh, you know, full-on production, uh, working again with, with production partners. Um, we did the Major League Baseball draft and the, and the All-Star Red Carpet Show at the All-Star Game this past year, actually the last three years uh, for Major League Baseball. Um, produce the pre-race show for the Indy 500. What's really very interesting about that one is it's two of us. Um, the production company, the production team is Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Frequently, we're brought in to be part of an organization that already exists. Pro Football Hall of Fame is exactly the same thing. We work on the Hall of Fame game. Um, we work on the Merlin Olson Super Bowl lunch and we work on the uh, Hall of Fame enshrinement ceremony. 
the team I work with there, I, we bring, again, one production coordinator, is them. Um, and that, I think, is what differentiates us. We don't pop everybody that we can think of on top of an event. If you need just one person to help you develop the creative, develop the run of show, call cues or don't or don't call cues whatever it happens to be we will we fit the right team and if it's not a team it may just be one person to help you get your do job done um if you want to reach me uh there's two ways to do that um one is you know get on linkedin with me um i have a i have a linkedin profile a lot of people dm me from that or from Twitter or X or whatever they call it this week. Um, uh, my my handle on Twitter is SUP Events S U P Events, um, and uh, and you can also reach out through our website FastTrafficEvents.com, and we have a uh, we have a contact page on there. All right, fantastic. So people, please do reach out to Frank. Uh, Frank, it's been. An immense pleasure for me to have this conversation, to get to know you. Thank you so much for spending the time to share your story. And listeners and viewers, thank you also for tuning in. Please like and subscribe to our podcast, and we'll catch you again soon. Frank, thank you so much. Thank you, Christian. Thank you, everyone.